Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So so we're on chapter 5 uh canto 5 chapter 5 verse 20 and uh as we've said many times this is a very famous chapter in the Bhagavatam my dear boys, you are all born of my heart, which is the seat of all spiritual qualities. Therefore, you should not be like materialistic and envious men. You should accept your eldest brother, Bharat, who is exalted in devotional service. If you engage yourself in Bharat's service, your service to him will include my service, and you will rule the citizens automatically. And Prabhupada writes in the purport, the heart is situated within the chest. And although instrumentally the son is born with the aids of the genitals, he is actually born from within the heart. According to the heart's situation, the semen takes the form of a body. Therefore, according to the Vedic system, when one begets his, uh, a child, his heart should be purified through the ritualistic ceremony known as Garbhadhana. Um, and then, well, okay, so we'll read a little bit more, a little further on. The question may be asked, why one should be attached? Oh, well, that's a separate point. So we've made this point before, but it's, you know, it's a little rep, uh, repetition is not bad. But I think it's very interesting, right? So it's, 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 uh, we often think like it's the mind, right? But here, of course, the mind and the heart are sometimes equated in, in the Vedic literature. But here it's a very interesting, the heart, uh, should be purified when beginning a child. And although we don't do some of the, all the ritualistic um, ceremonies that are mentioned about Garbhadana, there's so many of them, but Prabhupada insisted that we chant at least 50 rounds of Japa, which of course is the greatest Cheto Dharp in the margin, the greatest way of purifying the heart, because the heart of the parents at the time of conception attracts a particular soul into uh, the womb of the wife. So our heart should be in a good place, uh, uh, praying to the Lord to uh, bring us a, a good soul into this world. That's that point. So now the question may be asked why one should be attached to family members, for in the beginning it was advised that one should not be attached to a home and family. However, it is also advised, Mahiyasam para rajo One has to serve the Mahiyan, one who is very spiritually advanced. Mahat sevam dvaram ahur vimukte. By serving the Mahat, the exalted devotee, one's path for liberation is open. The family of Rishabdev should not be compared to an ordinary materialistic family. So, um, yes, and uh, that's, of course, true. Bart, as we're going to find, as we find out, especially in the next chapters, was a uh, a great, great devotee of the Lord. Um, but it's also really, really interesting here that uh, this whole idea of envy and the fact that there, you know, there it, there wasn't envy when when he said, you know, because one of the brothers might say, "What about me? What about me?" Right? Um, but there wasn't that envy. They they accepted Bharat, uh as Rishabdev had requested them to, and of course they. They were greatly uh, 
um, blessed because of that. And uh, even Vishnu Chakrabarti Thakur says that Bharat is the best of the great devotees. Um, and that uh, service to him, and, and we know this, right, that service to a devotee in one sense is, um, in many senses, is greater than service to Krishna. Um, because that's a way to get Krishna's attention. So serving Bharat, they were fortunate enough to then be serving Vishabdev, who is an incarnation of the Lord. Because they didn't think like this. This is also from uh, from Vishwanath Thakur. They might have said, we worship you because you are the Father and the Supreme Lord. We serve Narada and other great devotees because they awaken bhakti with us. Because we are princes, we serve to protect the citizens. But therefore, why should we worship Bharat? He's our brother. Uh, and then Vishwanath quotes Vishabdev, said, by worshiping Bharat, you both worship me and protect the citizens. This is my desire. So it's a also a nice thing because, like I personally, I have uh, I have one brother. Um, how many brothers do you have, Raghunandan Prabhu? I have one Prabhu, and he is okay. a twin brother. Oh, that's right, you have a twin. Andy, do you have any brothers? Two of them. Two of them. Okay. Uh, Ananda Rupa? Prabhu, I have three brothers. How many? Three brothers. Acha. And Jiva Tattva Prabhu? Two brothers, Prabhu. Okay. Uh, anyone else? David has one brother, but he doesn't have a microphone. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have one brother, Prabhu. Shakshi, you have one brother? Okay. Prabhuji, I have a four brother, one past uh, two brothers. Wow, you have four yeah. brothers. Gosh. Of course, anyone have a hundred or ninety-nine? <laughs> <laughs> no. I do, Prabhu. I have more than a hundred god brothers. That's that's the point that I was getting at. Yes, that um, in, in our society we have we do have brothers and sisters. Um, <clears throat> and in one sense, every member of our ISKCON community is a brother and sister, regardless of who they're initiated by, or they may be an uncle if they're initiated by Srila Prabhupada or an aunt. And so we have, so we can apply this principle, right? Uh, this principle of not being envious. Uh, if, if someone has a service that we wanted, you know, but by Krishna's arrangement, they have gotten that service, then we can assist them in that service instead of wanting to have their position. And that will please the spiritual master, the, the other devotees. Mm. It's, it's, it's a philosophical thing to be non-envious, but we also have to put it into practice. If we remember Krishna and Krishna's arranging things in our lives, then there's much less of a chance of getting envious, right? If someone is, for example, more, we've talked about this before, is more advanced than us, in Krishna consciousness, instead of saying, well, you know, they're not that advanced anyway, or, you know, whatever, uh, or it's just Guru Maharaj likes that person more, we can think that whatever struggles I'm going through, they've already surpassed those. They went through them and they surpassed them. And let me appreciate how Krishna has blessed them and may he also bless me. When we remember Krishna and remember that he's everyone's father and that 
this other devotee is connected to me, then you know envy can go away. I, I was listening, I was talking to some uh, ISKCON youths yesterday, you know, in their twenties and maybe early thirties, and they have this. They were they were saying that if if I feel some responsibility for my friend going back to Godhead in this life, then my the kind of discussions we would have and the kind of relationship we would have would be different. It would be different than just, hey, how's it going? But I actually um, trust them and I have, uh, they can speak openly to me and I'm not just going to be a mutual admiration society, but I'm gonna say, hey, how is your japa? You know, are you reading Prabhupada's? Are you, you know, uh, are you getting a whatever? Are you doing things that will bring you closer to Krishna? And they, and they wouldn't just get together and say, hey, how's it going? How's, the, how's your health? You know, whatever, those are natural things. But if they felt that I have some responsibility for my friend's spiritual life, they, 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 these devotees were saying they feel that the kata, the, the, the mood, the exchange, the rasa, would be of a different quality. And that's, that's certainly a way to overcome envy. If I think I have a responsibility for um, Henry's progress in Krishna consciousness or, or Miriam's or, or anyone's, right? it's, it's a different, uh, I thought it was really cool what they were saying. So some thoughts about envy or what we were just talking about. Hare Krishna Prabhu. Yes, two points Prabhu. one is regarding to the second point that you are talking about envy and uh, seeing everybody in our movement as our brothers and sisters uh, one time um, there was a question asked of uh, Rompal Swami Maharaj and he gave a very wonderful uh, response so I'm just paraphrasing it here based on my understanding um, how not to become envious of, uh, say, my god brother getting more uh, appreciation for his his or her service? Uh, because immediately, oh, I should also receive some appreciation from my guru Maharaj or from senior devotees. So, uh, Maharaj's response went like this: um, If we are in the association of devotees who are having some exceptional qualities we are also very fortunate and blessed because just by being in their association, those qualities are also getting transferred to us. Those blessings are also getting transferred to us. So I nice. found that to be very inspiring to just not become envious of anybody receiving any appreciation. Because it's, I, I'm also benefiting. I'm also very fortunate to have such devotees uh, to call friends or uh, mentors. So that was very inspiring. Thank you for that. And you said you had two points? Yeah, the second point was like the one that was Prabhupada was talking about the actual conception of a child first happens from within the heart. It reminded me of a point in Canto 10 where the Supreme Lord first appears in the mind of Vasudev and mm. goes to the heart and gets transferred to the heart of Devaki and to the womb of Mother Devaki. Nice. Thank you for that. Yes, very good. Other thoughts, comments, questions? Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Yes, Chivita Prabhu. So Prabhu, one of the things is like, what I have really paid attention is, we have our spiritual master, we have our instructing gurus, 
And so we should be looking at the society. Means again, the way we have started looking at it is like all Shri Prabhupada's disciples are our uncles and aunts, and then we have many instructing masters as well. You know, instructing gurus as well as our spiritual master. So we are all brothers and sisters in a mm. sense, and we are under the guidance, under the shelter of all these uncles and aunts and fathers that we are accepting. So. Krishna is one, God is one. How can we have, you know, one group of God brothers versus another group? We are all God brothers in that sense and sisters. And we are all responsible for each other's growth. So envy comes when we have some fear. And that fear sh should be removed by, you know, sincere chanting and being very pleasing to each other. So loving exchanges, the six loving exchanges are a way to enhance our relationship. So that's kind of like what we are starting to look at very closely introspecting it. Hare Krishna. Thank you. I think, I think you make a really important point, Jivatapurubu. If you think about ISKCON's future as, as a, in an organizational sense versus societal sense, um, after the present spiritual masters are no longer on the planet, we don't want to have like silos, you know, the, 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 the descending people of this guru and the descending followers of that guru, but we want to um, have it ISKCON-wide idea. I mean, certainly there's some there's some natural uh, relationship when people have this, the same guru, but we all have the same Param guru, and we all have the same founder Acharya. So I appreciate your point. Thank you for that. So shall we carry on? Hare Krishna, Prabhu. Oh yes, Nandamuki, go ahead. Um, I just have a quick comment. The okay. first sentence in this verse is. Um, my dear boys, you are all born of my heart. I feel like as Rishabhadeva expressing that every one of his prince, 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 princess is equally dear to his heart. Mm. Nice. So yes. regardless of regardless of how they play a role in the royal court, but they are equally valuable and dear to the heart of the Supreme Lord. Nice. And that's, that's a tricky one, isn't it, uh, Nandimukhi? Because Krishna will say in the Gita, Samoham Sarvuteshu Name Dveshu Sinapriyaha, Ye Bhajanti Tumam Bhatya Mai Teteshu Chapyahamna. I'm equal to everyone. Samoham Sarvabhute Name Dvesha, no enemies, no friends. Yet, if someone renders me devotion, then they're special. But everyone has, but as I think you would point out in your point, everyone has that potential to render devotional service. It's for, um, it's everyone's janmakar, their, their eligibility just by being a living entity. I think Krishna loves everyone equally, but not everyone is equally in love with Krishna. <laughs> yes, thank you. So we'll move on, text 21 and 22. Of the two energies manifest, spirit and dull matter, being, uh, beings possessing living force, vegetables, grass, trees, and plants are superior to dull matter, stone, earth, etc. Superior to non-moving plants and vegetables are worms and snakes which can move. Superior to worms and snakes are animals that have developed intelligence. Superior to animals are human beings, and superior to human beings are ghosts because they have no material bodies. Now that's an interesting point, which we'd have to do some research on to see what he means there. Superior to ghosts are the kandharas, 
are Gandharvas, and superior to them are the Siddhas. Superior to the Siddhas are the Kinaras, and superior to them are the are the Asuras. So that's also like, hmm, how's that? Superior to the Asuras are the demigods, and of the demigods, Indra, the king of heaven, is supreme. Superior to Indra are the direct sons of Brahma, sons like King Taksha. And supreme among Brahma's sons is Lord Shiva. Since Lord Shiva is the son of Lord Brahma, Brahma is considered superior, but Brahma is also subordinate to me, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Because I am inclined to the Brahmanas. The Brahmanas are best of all. So I'd have to do some research on the details, but the point is really in the last sentence, <laughs> right? That superior to everyone is Krishna, and yet he is inclined to the Brahmanas, which he puts even above himself. So then 23, O respectful Brahmanas, as far as I am concerned, no one is equal or superior to the Brahmanas in this world. I do not find anyone comparable to them. When people know my motive after performing rituals according to the Vedic principles, they offer food to me with faith and love through the mouth of a Brahmana. When food is thus offered unto me, I eat it with full satisfaction. Indeed, I derive more pleasure from food offered in that way than from the food offered in the sacrificial fire. 24. The Vedas are my eternal transcendental sound incarnation. Therefore, the Vedas are Shabdha Prama. In this world, Brahmanas thoroughly study all the Vedas, and because they assimilate the Vedic conclusions, they are also to be considered the Vedas personified. The Brahmanas are situated in the supreme transcendental mode of nature, Sattvagun. Because of this, they are fixed in mind, shama, sense control, dhamma, and truthfulness, satya. They describe the Vedas in their own original sense and out of mercy, anugraha. They preach the purpose of the Vedas to all conditioned souls. They practice penance, tapasya, and tolerance, tatiksha, and they realize the position of the living entity and the Supreme Lord, anubhava. These are the eight qualifications of the brahmanas. Therefore, among all living entities, no one is superior to the Brahmanas. I am fully opulent, almighty, and superior to Lord Brahma and Indra, the king of the heavenly planets. I am also the bestower of all happiness obtained in the heavenly kingdom and by liberation. Nonetheless, the Brahmanas do not seek material comforts from me. They are very pure and do not want to possess anything. They simply engage in my devotional service. What is the need of their asking for material benefits from anyone? And Prabhupada writes in the purport, and the reason I chose this one is we kind of get the conclusion of the last three or four verses. And Prabhupada writes the conclusion, Brahmanas who are pure Vaishnavas are always engaged in the Lord's service and are devoid of any sense, any desire for material gain. The Brahmanas do not worship demigods like Lord Brahma, Indra, or Shiva, or Shiva for any material comfort. They do not even ask the Supreme Lord for material profit. Therefore, it is concluded that the Brahmanas are the supreme living entities of this world. So this is Lord Rishabdev's uh, conclusion that his son, sh sons should uh, serve Bharat and they should be guided by the most qualified Brahmanas, the Brahmana Vaishnavas. And, you know, now they, so then like you have that and then, you know, fortified, you know, with this, this mode of goodness that, that is in the translation there. 
these exalted souls will accept the guidance from Krishna and from the Shastra. You know, so things work out really well if you follow uh, this. Um, and here it also says that one of the qualifications of a Vaishnava is not asking the Lord for material profit, <clears throat> or, or as Juva Maharaj would say, broken glass, when Krishna can give us the real thing, his devotional service. So some thoughts on this verse. Hare Krishna Prabhu. Hare Krishna. Um, so look, from this, it, it it's quite clear that um, a person who is properly situated in it in their consciousness, uh, that person is not going to ask for any material benefits or material benedictions, but only to be engaged in uh, devotional service to the Supreme Lord. That mm -hmm. person doesn't want anything else except that. Right. Yes. I mean, I remember, you know, we talked about that one purport where Prabhupada says, sometimes Krihastas may ask the Lord for something. <laughs> but it's it's just the comparison, right? The comparison of, you know, asking for whatever, um, you know, a bigger house or whatever, compared to eternal relationship with the Supreme Lord, if we get it right, it's so it's so clearly silly. <laughs> but the mind sometimes equates the two or is looking more for uh, preyas than shreyas, right? The short-term benefit rather than long-term. And I think, at least in my life, I think one of the reasons for that is, I, I was going to say lack of faith. And if someone says, well, do you believe the spiritual world is there? Yes. Maybe it's lack of urgency, lack of understanding the, as Prabhupada said, that one of his complaints about his disciples was that they were not sufficiently afraid of Maya. <laughs> so, yeah, lack of urgency or lack of just consciousness, remembering that Krishna is the goal of my life. Yeah, intention. Yeah. Intention, did you say? Yeah. Yeah, right, right. lack of... Uh, Awareness, intention. Very good. Yeah. Other Mahamantra, were you going to say something? Yeah, Prabhu. Um, I have this dilemma. Like uh, sometimes we need to pray for uh, other devotees' well-being, and at the same time, the dilemma is: I, I know, and Krishna knows, there are better devotees than me. Um, so Krishna knows what is best for them. So is it silly to pray and uh, at the same time? <laughs> well, do you think the devotees would be happy that you're praying for them? Yes, that's the only hope. For... <laughs> well, then, then I think you answered your own question. <laughs> because we just we want to make devotees happy. Thank we you. We want to serve devotees. So yeah, we could we could get all caught up in ourselves and how yeah. oh, I'm so fallen and this and that. <laughs> and that may all be true, or that may be true from our point of view, but our point of view doesn't have much weight in this sense. Right. What, what counts is that the devotees are are pleased with us. So if a devotee says, Mahamantra, will you please pray for me? And they say, yes. You know, we might get all humble and say, well, I don't know if Krishna will listen to it, but since you asked me, <laughs> <Pray>. <laughs> I will do that. 
And it's all to, it's up to Krishna who he wants to listen to, right? Right. He's the Abhigyaswarat. He's independent of yes. whether we think he's going to listen to us or not. And even, but do you know the Bengali for that? The uh, that Lord that Lord Nityananda delivers the most fallen first. And I think that's in one of is it Naratan Das Thakur's prayers. Yeah, I'm a, yes. So, so in that sense, right? Because that's is that Bhakti Vinod Thakur. Mm, not the, sure. Right off, right top of my head, probably. Yeah. So. I, I believe it's Bhakti Nathakur. It could be Nathakur, yeah. but I think it's Bhakti Nathakur. Um, so then that devotee is saying, well, I'm the most fallen, so I should be well, under the line. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, bro. Thank you. Other thoughts? Okay. Then we will go on to the next verse, which we're also going to read. Um, my dear sons, you should not envy any living entity, be he moving or non-moving. Knowing that I am situated in them, you should offer respects to all of them at every moment. In this way, you offer respect to me. And Prabhupada clarifies this in the purport. This is different from the theory of pantheism, which holds that everything is God. And he said everything has a relationship with God because God is situated everywhere. Should I read that again? It's a really important point. This is different from the theory of pantheism, which holds that everything is God. Everything has a relationship with God because God is situated everywhere. Okay. Mm. So any, any thoughts on that point? It's, it's, it's an important point to make that distinction. But maybe it's quite clear. Um, it it brings to my mind a point that we were discussing a while back in our group, where one of the devotees was asking, uh, "We treat Srimad Bhagavatam as Krishna Himself, and is it okay to just leave the book in, in, in its box, a new book?" just in the trunk of the car and it is so hot outside. <laughs> That's an interesting one. Well, uh, well, if it's in the trunk of the car because we want to distribute it to someone, I think it's totally fine. <laughs> if it's just sitting there for no reason, then yeah, we should take it out of the trunk and put it in a nice bookshelf someplace in our house. <laughs> but I'm sure... Srila Prabhupada is very pleased if it's in the trunk of our car for distribution purposes. Does that make sense? Yes, bro. So this is kind of Rishabdev's, you know, concluding instructions to his son. And it's interesting because Krishna says something really similar to Uddhava in the 29th chapter of the 11th canto. He says, O brilliant Uddhava, one who thus views all living entities with the idea that I am present within each of them, and who by taking shelter of this divine knowledge offers due respect to everyone, is considered actually wise. Such a man sees equally the brahmanas and the outcast, the thief and the charitable promoter of Brahminical culture, the sun and the tiny sparks of fire, the gentle and the cruel. And then he goes on, right? Krishna goes on to say about this point about having respect for everyone, 
that for him who constantly meditates upon my presence within all persons, the bad tendencies, so this is really interesting. Let me read this again. For him who constantly meditates upon my presence within all persons, right? Which is also what Rishabh Dave is telling his sons, right? Here. The bad tendencies of rivalry, envy, and abusiveness, along with false ego, are very quickly destroyed. So there's such a parallel between what the how Krishna concluded his instructions with Uddhav and the way Rishabdev is finishing his instructions with Bharat. And then if we get into this purport a little bit more, um, we see some interesting points from the Padma Purana, right? So the first one Prabhupada quotes, Vivikta Dristi Jivanam Dristyataya Parameshwarasya Veda Dristi. One who has clear vision and who is devoid of envy can see that the Supreme Lord is separate from all living entities, although he is situated in every living entity. This is all very interesting. Prabhupada draws so much from the Padma Purana here. Then the next one that begins, Upa Dayat, and I won't read the whole thing. Uh, one who sees the living entity and the Supreme Lord as always distinct is very dear to the Lord. So this idea of part and parcel, Achintya Beda Beda Tat. And then the last part that Yo. One who preaches that the living entities are separate from the Supreme Lord is very dear to Lord Vishnu. So the here in these quotes, the I always get it confused. Is, is this the bait? Which one is the bait and which was the abade? Bade means different and abade means the same. Yeah. Yes, Bade is yeah, different, okay. abade is the same. Quality is uh, abed, same. Abed is the same. Yeah. Okay, so here the bed is being uh, emphasized. Yeah, quantity. Right. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. Identity also. The parcel, not the part and parcel. And we understand from all of Prabhupada's books and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's teachings, achintya beda, abeda tattva. But we're simultaneously one with and different from. Lord, but if we only consider the one with, that's what this purport is strongly advising against. Yeah. So some thoughts on this verse? Madhvacharya was also talking about with pointing two fingers. Yeah. Distinct. The Lord and the uh, living entities are distinct individuals. It's mm -hmm. a really important point. And so many spiritually minded people get that messed up. So many. You know, I wanted to ask of the this end of the last first paragraph of the um, purport. Um, uh, an advanced devotee will offer respects to everyone, even cats and dogs. Um, you know, so I'm going to guess infer that Prabhupada wrote this when he would already been to the United States and seen our culture and seen how attached we are to cats and dogs. <laughs> well, he, Fifth Canto was written after he'd been to the West. That's true. <laughs> so, Henry, next time you're out walking in your neighborhood and you see cats and dogs, will you pay obeisances? Yeah, that's the way. Yes, we can. Uh, we don't have to get down on the ground and do dandavats. But the idea that it's, it's a way of seeing Krishna everywhere. Uh, uh, for one who sees me everywhere and everything within me, I've never lost to him, nor has he ever lost to me. 
So remembering, or rather even better than seeing, remembering Krishna is to also remember, there's a cat right there. Thank you very much. We have Darsha. So everyone make sure that you pay respects to Danny's uh, cat there, if you can see. It's hard to see because the black cat on the black couch. There we go. <laughs> very good. So, yeah, we, 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 yeah, but that's, I, I like your cultural point, Henry. That, yeah. When I first moved to India, I don't remember it. practically, maybe a few times in the real posh part of Delhi, like Greater Kailash, but hardly ever you'd see someone having pet dogs in the 80s. And Henry, you, I think you went to India even earlier than I did. But I guess my first trip to India was 79. But now it's quite a common sight. So things have changed a bit. Any other thoughts on this verse? Okay. Then we will sally forth and we will read the verse, the just the translations to the rest of this chapter. The true activity of the sense organs, mind, sight, words, and all the knowledge gathering and working senses, is, excuse me, is to engage fully in my service. Unless his senses are thus engaged, the living entity cannot think of getting out of the great entanglement of material existence, which is exactly like Yamaraj's stringent rope. So I think that's part of it, uh, Raghunandan Prabhu. I don't think I'm always remembering that I'm caught in Yamaraj's stringent rope. Sukadeva Goswami said, thus the great well-wisher of everyone, the Supreme Lord, Brishabdhev, uh, instructed his own sons. Although they were perfectly educated and cultured, he instructed them just to set an example of how a father should instruct his sons before retiring from family life. Sannyasis, who are no longer bound by fruit of activity and who have taken to devotional service after all their material desires have been vanquished, also learned by these instructions. Lord Rishabdev instructed his 100 sons, of whom the eldest part was a very advanced devotee and a follower of Vaishnavas. In order to rule the whole world, the Lord enthroned his eldest son on the royal seat. Thereafter, although still at home, Lord Rishabdev lived like a madman, naked and with disheveled hair. Then the Lord took the sacrificial fire within himself and he left Brahma Bharta to tour the whole world. So we talked about that, how the strong preaching was specifically meant for the sannyasis, although we can apply them appropriately in our lives. Text 29. After accepting the feature of Avadhuta, a great saintly person without material cares, Lord Rishabdev passed through human society like a blind, deaf, and dumb man, an idle stone, a ghost, or a madman. Although people called him such names, he remained silent and did not speak to anyone. Rishabdev began to tour through cities, villages, mines, countrysides, valleys, gardens, military camps, cow pens, the homes of cowherd men, transient hotels, hills, forests, and hermitages. Wherever he traveled, all bad elements surrounded him just as flies surround the body of an elephant coming from a forest. He was always being threatened, beaten, urinated upon, and spat upon. Sometimes people threw stones, stool, and dust at him, and sometimes people passed foul air before him. The people called him many bad names and gave him a great deal of trouble, 
that he did not care about this, for he understood that the body is simply meant for such an end. He was situated on the spiritual platform, and being thus, and being in his spiritual glory, he did not care for all these material insults. In other words, he completely understood that matter and spirit are separate, and he had no bodily conception. Thus, without being angry at anyone, he walked through the whole world alone. So obviously, we are not meant to imitate this, and this is, comes up in the next chapter. But we can see how this, the Lord has six opulences, and one of them is renunciation. And here is a very high level of renunciation being spoken about. Lord Rishabdev's hands and feet, his chest were very long. Uh, his very long arms, his shoulders, his face, and every part of his body were all very delicate and symmetrically proportioned. His mouth was beautifully decorated with his natural smile, and he appeared all the more lovely with his reddish eyes spread wide like the petals of a newly grown lotus flower covered with the dew in the early morning. The irises of his eyes were so pleasing that they removed all the trouble of everyone who saw him. His forehead, eyes, neck, nose, and all his other features were very beautiful. His gentle smile always made his face beautiful, so much so that he even attracted the hearts of married women. It was as though he had been pierced, uh, they had been pierced by the arrows of Cupid. Above his head was an abundance of curly matted brown hair. His hair was disheveled because his body was dirty and not taken care of. He appeared as if he were haunted by a ghost. When Lord Rishabdev saw that the general populace was very antagonistic to his execution of mystic yoga, he accepted the behavior of a python in order to counteract their opposition. Thus he stayed in one place and lay down. While lying down, he ate and drank, and he passed stool and urine and rolled in it. Indeed, he smeared his whole body with his own stool and urine so that opposing elements might not come and disturb him. Because Lord Rishabdev remained in that condition, the public did not disturb him, but no bad aroma emanated from his stool and urine. Quite the contrary, his stool and urine were so aromatic that they filled 80 miles of the countryside with a pleasing, pleasing Pleasant fragrance. That's when, when uh, in the next chapter we hear about people who try to imitate him, Prabhupada would you know, quip that uh, if you can imitate that, if your stool and urine can make 80 miles smell nice, then you can also imitate Lord Rishabdev. So good luck with that one. In this way, Lord Rishabdev followed the behavior of cows, deer, and crows. Sometimes he moved or walked, and sometimes he sat down in one place. Sometimes he lay down, behaving exactly like cows, deers, and crows. In that way, he ate, drank, passed stool and urine, and cheated the people in this way. Prabhupada well, describes what he means by cheating, that he was actually the Supreme Lord and, and his body was fully spiritual. They could appreciate it. Om King Parikshit, just to show all the yogis the mystic process. So here's one of the reasons he did all this. Lord Rishabdev, the plenary expansion of Lord Krishna, performed wonderful activities. Actually, he was the master of liberation and was fully absorbed in transcendental bliss, which increased a thousandfold. Lord Krishna, Vasudev, the son of Vasudev, is the original source of Lord Rishabdev. There is no difference in their constitution, and consequently, Lord Rishabdev awakened the loving sentiment, the loving symptoms of crying, laughing, and shivering. He was always absorbed in transcendental love. Due to this, all mystic powers automatically approached him, such as the ability to travel in outer space at the speed of mind 
to appear and disappear, to enter the bodies of others, and to see things far, far away. Although he could do all this, he did not exercise these powers. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purports of the fifth canto, fifth chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam entitled Lord Rishabdev teaches his sons. So any any thoughts on what we just read? We we read through a bunch of verses and they were quite interesting, maybe a little hard to understand. I guess you know, uh, accept my humble obeisances. Um, I was wondering, like um, uh, uh, the Rishabhadev's uh, uh, Leela on this particular aspect, um, he teaches his sons, and then, like, uh, what is the reason that he wants to uh, behave like this? And, uh, you know, uh, in the previous uh, uh, things, uh, like in Basvi reading Bhagavatam, uh, most of them when they do the renunciation, particularly Sanyasha Ashram um, or Vanaprastha Ashram, uh, they go to pilgrimage normally. And uh, here, uh, Rishabh Dev is going around each and every corner of the world and particularly where the people are and doing all these activities. Uh, and I see the resemblance with the Sukadev Goswami also. He also did the similar type of activity. So, do we have any commentary from Acharyas why uh, they they did they performed this type of uh, uh, service? Well, the uh, there is mention of him setting the example for yogis, right? He he's because it says he got all the powers right of the mystic yoga process. And then we'll see in the next ver the 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 next verses in the sixth chapter how he had all of the powers, but he didn't use them. And Krishna Maharaj was like, "Why didn't he use them?" <laughs> he was he was surprised that he didn't use them. So that'll be coming up. Let me see if I um, have anything else in my notes here. Give me a second. Well, Prabhupada defines Avaduta in text 29 as one who does not care for social conventions, particularly the Varnashram Dharma. However, such a person may be situated fully within himself to be satisfied with the Supreme Personality of Godhead on whom he meditates. In other words, one who has surpassed the rules and regulations of Varnashram is called Avaduta. Such a person has already surpassed the clutches of Maya and is completely separate and independent. So, one thing we're supposed to learn here is about tolerance. That's one thing we can learn from Maharaj Vishabdev. Lord Chaitanya also taught us that, right? To Trinata And it's a fact, right? Because without we all I think we all have this experience that without tolerance, our life circumstances they often absorb our consciousness. And we sometimes feel angry or political. This one did this to this. Why did they do this that's to me? And we, we think in terms of friends and enemies. And even like apparently un, 
fortunate events we experience, we they can really you know they they really can disturb us uh, disturb our mind and take us for a loop. And we you know Krishna, who is that? So one thing Lord Vishab they definitely is teaching us is about tolerance. Let me see what else I have in my notes here. Um, it's also said that he was not being eccentric in his neglect of social standards. He was beyond the touch of Maya. So he didn't need to do all this. He simply just had like no connection with, with matter. And Prabhupada talks about this also in the purport, the 30. His body was transcendental and consequently did not at all suffer pain. He was always situated in a spiritual bliss. Although Lord Rishabdev was maltreated by the bad elements of the world, he was not at all affected. He was situated in his own glory. He was never saddened due to being insulted in the ways that are described above. So then, in text 31, Sukadev Goswami, um, again, I'm just going to my notes here, gives another reason for Rishabdev's increased uh, renunciation. He desired to, yeah, here's the point that I was making. He desired to demonstrate to yogis the proper practice of mystic processes. And then in 35, Sukadev Goswami is, is giving us a glimpse into the, the depth of Lord Dave's consciousness. Um, And then why didn't he use those powers? Prabhupada writes in text 35, he was satisfied with his devotional love of Krishna, which was evinced by the ecstatic symptoms such as crying, laughing, and shivering. Mm. So, you know, obviously here Rishabh Dev is giving an example that's really unattainable, we wouldn't want to attain of his austerities and detachment. But he was also showing us that one can live totally aloof from the body and its pleasures and still feel full satisfaction on the spiritual platform. So those were, I hope that gives you some answers there uh, of why he did what he did. Oh, now, uh, the, the real pain I had was was that uh, Supreme Lord is going through uh, this type of uh, uh, insanity uh, that like people are misbehaving with him. Uh, that was very painful for me that uh, why Lord has to perform this type of Leela. And, uh, you know. Well, for the reason, the only reason that I understand are the ones that I offered. Yeah. But ultimately, Krishna can do as he likes. Andy? Yeah, can I make a little comment here? Sure. Uh, in the in the purport for of uh, text twenty nine, uh, right at the beginning, he says the word avadhuta refers to one who does not care for social conventions, particularly vanashra dharma. But uh, just an interesting footnote, and you can go on Wikipedia. There's an article about the cynics in Greece, who actually did this. The original cynics, now cynic means something else. Right. The original cynic means, the word cynic means dog, having no shame. 
So a dog wants to drop stool, he just drops it. If he wants to lick his genitals, he doesn't care about any social conventions. And so uh, Lord Rashiva Dave was kind of giving an example of how not only don't worry about sorrow and pleasure and pain, you're beyond that. You can go beyond that when you just doesn't affect you. It doesn't matter what the other people are doing because you have no shame and you really don't care what they do. Thank you. Just a footnote. It's on Wikipedia, the cynics. Every, everything on Wikipedia, except for Krishna Prana. Like, how else is best one? Well, no, so it was done. It was, this was done in Greece. And the original uh -huh. cynic, the first one that did this, he lived in a jar, like a giant um, <laughs> ceramic jar on the streets of Athens. And he just did everything right in front of everybody, and he didn't care. And that's how he lived his life. So let's go to Jay's question. Jay says, if, if, if Lord Rishabdev is the Supreme Lord, why is he not mentioned as one of the ten avatars? Well, there are unlimited avatars. There are as many as the waves of the ocean. So the Das avatars are prominent, but Lord Rishabdev is not for bringing it up. So there are, there are many avatars <coughs> excuse me, of the Lord that are not that are go beyond the these ten. These ten are prominent, and Lord Chaitanya and Lord Nityananda are obviously the great example of that, as you're pointing out here. Why are they not mentioned? Well, they are mentioned, and a matter of fact, seventh canto and eleventh canto both give a number of indications about Lord Chaitanya's. Uh, being the supreme personality of Godhead. For example, Krishna Varnam Chisa Krishna Sangapangastaparshanam Jagyaya Sankirtana Prayer Yajantihi Sumedasa. So that verse appears in the 11th canto of this Srimad Bhagavatam in predicting Lord Chaitanya's appearance. So not everything is in those, uh, those 10 avatars. I hope that ha uh, answers your question, Jay. But certainly the Bhagavatam, which is the highest Purana and most dear to devotees of Krishna have several, many chapters dedicated to Lord Vishabdhev and many verses dedicated to Lord Chaitanya. Okay, and has the Abhadutta acknowledged that his body belongs to the Lord? A devotee Abhadutta definitely, and certainly Lord Vishabdhev would think like that. So I would, I'm not sure if you can label a impersonalist and avaduta. I would assume you could, and they might not think that their body belongs to the Lord in the same way that a devotee does. So a devotee, yes, thinks that this body is given to me to use in Krishna's service. Let's see if there's one or more in the chat. Oh, no, there's just about muting. Okay, and Jay is satisfied. And yet, Gurudas is saying, all he said was, and yet. <laughs> Go ahead, Gurudas, but you can say it without typing it. Yeah. So, um, what you just said was intriguing. Um, we all know this that a, a advanced personality in Abadut, he thinks of the, his body as the Lord's property, and yet the Abadut totally neglects his body. 
at the same time, we're given um, as preachers or as aspiring preachers, we're given the instruction that our health is paramount in our yep. devotional service. And yet uh, it seems from this bit of conversation that once once one chooses to become avidut at a very advanced stage, the body is totally neglected. It seems mm -hmm. like a paradox. Well, you're also bringing up a really important point, Gurudaspu, that uh, yes, there are avidutus who aren't necessarily pure devotees, because we're seeing here that he's setting an example for yogis. Yogis can be devotees. Yogis can be impersonalists also. Yogi, you know, the person who's Paramatma realization, they kind of have a, um, a juncture and they can go to impersonal Brahman or they can go to Bhagavan depending on their association. If the yogi gets the association of a devotee, then, so they may not all, certainly not all avadutas, if I understand correctly, would see their body as belonging to Krishna. And at the same time, we may not be able to fully understand the mind of an avaduta. Certainly we can't understand the mind of Lord Nityananda. Was sometimes it was called Avaduta Shiromani, the greatest Avaduta. He just did things that were not always part of the social custom. But in general, we we want to uh, take care of our body. Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur says, sadhana is performed with the senses. Therefore, it is essential that the sadhaka firmly and expertly engage his senses in the activities of sadhana. One can perform the practices of sadhana in a charming way if one keeps the body healthy. So again, sadhana is practice, and avadutas may be more on the platform of siddha, perfection. But for us, this is really important. And because I'm, I'm the reason I happen to have that quote out is I'm making a video later today a short video about exercise to, you know, I don't know if you've been seeing, there's these emails that have been sent out from the GVC strategic planning team about COVID-19 and the different aspects of it. If you're not, I can send me your email address. I'll add you to the, if you're interested. So I made, I made a, uh, a video already on for people who are over 60 and to be careful about it, but this one's going to be targeted for people over 60, but it's really for anyone that, we should take care of our health, especially when we're cooped up in our houses like many of us are. And, and we're lucky here. I was talking to devotees from South Africa yesterday, and it might change in the next few days, but for the last month, they haven't been able to go outside at all. No one's allowed to go for a walk. No one's allowed to go for a bicycle ride. Nothing. Whereas at least I know where I am, uh, we're allowed to, to do that. So in the verse Yukta Hara Biharasya Yukta Chaistasya Kamasu Yukta Swapna Babodasya Yogo Bhavati Dukaha that one should be temperate in their habits of eating, sleeping, working, and recreation. Uh, and then one can achieve what is it? All health or all perfection by practicing the yoga system. So in that purport, Vishnu Chakravarti Sakra says that for a yogi, walking is exercise, is recreation. And then we learn in Prabhupada's life, he went on morning walks almost every day and he would do it briskly, right? There's these discussions about his disciples 50 years younger than him that struggled to keep up with him. 
And not that Prabhupada's body was tall. I don't know, five, 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 six. I, I don't know for sure. So that we should, we can get inspiration from Prabhupada. He took care of his health. He went for a morning walk every day. He had a massage every day. Every day, meaning obviously there must have been sometimes when he missed, but that, that's how he took care of it. So we should uh, similarly do that, whether it's walking is, is a great way, whether it's doing Pilates or yoga or, you know, Tai Chi or whatever it is, we should regularly uh, do lifting weights, we should regularly get up off our asanas and do, you know, do some uh, activities. And also sleep. You know, sometimes we, we read about, I'm sorry, I'm going on my pedestal <laughs> a little bit about this, but we read in the Bhagavad Gita that someone who sleeps more than six hours is affected by the mode of ignorance. Elsewhere, Prabhupada says six to eight hours. And in the third canto, Prabhupada writes that smriti means memory and swapa, uh, swapa means sleep. Sleep is also necessary to keep the intelligence in working order. If there is no sleep, the brain cannot work nicely. In Bhagavad Gita, it is especially mentioned that persons who regulate eating, sleeping, and other necessities of the body in the proper proportion become very successful in the yoga process. So I was just kind of picking up from what you were saying, Guru Das Prabhu, that we should take care of our health, and especially these days, because at least for me, when I'm at work in my office, um, there's nothing really to snack on or eat, or you know, I'm not. At it. But here, um, ten feet from a kitchen, <laughs> and it's so easy to go up and just take prasadam more often than I normally would. So we should be regulated in our eating and sleeping, and mating and defending, and exercise, and we should get some exercise. Any thoughts on that? Well, in, in Germany, where they did very well, uh, I talked to my friend, and she said they, they they promoted exercise as long as it's groups of no more than two people, like, you know, husband, mm -hmm. wife, or a companion. And they did very well in Germany, very few deaths. Yes. And uh, Nilamadava Prabhu, who's a doctor, is also a temple president in Baltimore, and a doctor, I think I mentioned this last week, he suggested the devotees do some pranayama because a lot of COVID-19 weakens the uh, lungs. And so strengthening the lungs is, is important. If we were to catch this terrible thing, we have a better chance of surviving it well if our lungs are strong. So, yes. The number one way to clean the lungs is the fire breath, the snapping of the diaphragm. Mm. So I know you all are familiar with that. It's um, a forced exhale, and then the lungs automatically inhale with a very gentle movement. So you want to start it out very slowly. And what it is, it's um, kind of like blowing a candle out with your nose, and you'll use this, the diaphragm. You bring it up to force the air out. So it looks like this. Oops, excuse me. Sorry. Yes. So do you have a Sanskrit for that? There's a Sanskrit name for that also, right? Um, Kapala Bhakti. Kapala. Uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a little, I haven't been practicing my yoga teaching. Um, and that is the number one way to increase the oxygen in the blood. And that's what's kind of the, being depleted through this virus. And when you begin your um, fire breathing, you should start it very, very gentle. If you feel any pressure, 
discontinue and go back to normal breathing. And so you might start out with just simple 14 or maybe seven exhales. And then work up to maybe three rounds of 40. Really? For somebody who's been doing pranayama for years on a daily basis, because this will definitely put some stress on the cardiovascular system. So you definitely want to take it easy when you're doing it. But it's the number one way to clean the blood and bring in more oxygen into the system. Thank you. And I've always noticed in pranayama circles that that's the one exercise they do give some warning to be careful not to do it too much, more than the other, you know, the this one. and Right, body suiting, yeah. alternate breathing, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yoga breath, which is the three-part breathing, and then this fire breath that we just talked about. Thank you so much. Do it at dawn, right before you do your meditation. You'll clean out all the mucus. Make sure you have a tissue handy. Yes. <laughs> it can get messy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Other thoughts, questions, comments? Well, then let us begin the next chapter. These next two chapters are short, relatively speaking. And we are on chapter six. Verse number one King Parikshit asked Sukadev Goswami, My dear Lord, for those who are completely pure in heart, knowledge is attained by the practice of bhakti yoga. An attachment for fruit of activities is completely burned to ashes. For such people, the powers of mystic yoga automatically arise. They do not cause distress. Why then did Rishabdev neglect them? So he said, you know, he didn't, he did, you know, he got these powers in the right way. He got them by bhakti. He didn't get them for material reasons. So why did he turn them down, basically? Right? And here's the reply. Sukadev Goswami says, my dear king, you have spoken correctly. However, after capturing animals, a cunning hunter does not put faith in them, for they might run away. Similarly, those who are advanced in spiritual life do not put faith in the mind. Indeed, they always remain vigilant and watch the mind's actions. So basically what he's saying here in the context is that I may have acquired, I may, he may have acquired them by bhakti yoga, but one can get enamored by them, right? Even though you get, you get, right? If you get these mystic yoga siddhis and, and, and powers, you might get them in the right way. You didn't want them, but they came by your practice of bhakti, but still we can, you know, the mind is such a tricky fellow or what's a female gender of fellow? person that one has to be so careful this is such a interesting statement the next one's even stronger right all the learned scholars have given their opinion the mind is by nature very restless and listen to this one should not make friends with it how many of us kind of consider our mind our friend now it tells us to do something yes i should do that it tell it has an opinion about this or that yeah that's a very good opinion I like that opinion very much. Right? We, we, it's interesting how this is such a strong statement. If we, practice, if we place full confidence in the mind, it may cheat us at any moment. Even Lord Shiva became agitated upon seeing the Mohini form of Lord Krishna. And so Muni also fell down from the mature stage of yogic perfection. And Prabhupada talks that we can... We can uh, he gives us the the way to 
be freed from the allurements of the material world and the tricks of the mind. And he says that is by chanting the Maha Mantra offenselessly, that it's just so hard to control the mind. What did Arjuna say in Bhagavad Gita about how hard it was? I can control the wind, but not the mind. Right, it's harder than controlling the wind. And Krishna says there, you can do it by abhyasa and vairagya, by practice and renunciation. But also later we'll, 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 we'll learn the real way um, or the stronger way. And that is, let's say, in the 18th chapter. If somebody could find 1857 and 58. <clears throat> and then Andy has quoted... Srila Bhakti Siddhanta's Saraswati Thakur about that's from the Gita also. A hundred times before going to bed and beat the mind a hundred times with a broomstick. <laughs> yeah, um, it's just that we get in a lot of trouble by following the mind rather than the intelligence guiding the mind. Did anyone find those verses? That's trouble. Okay, could you read them, please? Fifty-seven and fifty-eight. Yeah. Chapter 18, text 57, in all activities just depend upon me and work always under my protection. In such devotional service, be fully conscious of me. Text 58, if you become conscious of me, you will pass over all the obstacles of conditioned life by my grace. By my grace. If how you don't even have to read the next part. That was the main point. By my grace. He says that you'll be lost if you don't. But yes, by my grace. So that's... That's ultimately, we have to get the higher taste of spiritual life that is different. Uh, I, I may have mentioned this before. Uh, I've been having a talk also with my colleagues at work about the three hearts. Uh, Sachinandan Swami talks about the three hearts. The one that pumps blood, the one that has uh, all kinds of emotions of love and hate and spiritual <laughs> and all those things, and then the spiritual heart. The spiritual heart, and that has to be nourished by our japa, by our association, by our thoughts, by our love. We have to pour water on the root of that. Well, that's, that's a mixed metaphor. <laughs> we have to uh, nourish that heart. Uh, yes, and thank you for the, the, the verses there. So, should we focus on controlling the mind or on chanting Hare Krishna fencelessly? Well, they're not, that could be seen as a false dilemma, either this or that. But there's a way to combine those two, and that is to fix the mind on the chanting. And so that is controlling the mind and chanting offenselessly. So, fixing the mind on the holy name, the vibration of Krishna's name is thinking about Krishna and it is controlling the mind. And we learn in the 11th canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam from the Avadhuta Brahmana that the only problem in this world, he says, is our materially contaminated mind. That doesn't mean the mind is always bad. We learn that also from Bhagavad Gita, Udared Atmanatmanam, Atmanam Abhisad, Atmanam Navisadya, Atmaiva Hi Atmanal Bandur, that the mind can be your bandur if it is following the intelligence and the intelligence is following guru, sadhu, and shastra. And it can easily, as we've probably all experienced in life, 
it can be our bipur, it can be our enemy. It can, it can think enviously of others. It can think greedy in a greedy way. It can think in a lusty way. It can, it can have all kinds of things that are not what we really want to have in our heart. Some thoughts? I always have a thought. Yes. When you described the three hearts, it felt to me like the one that was pumping the blood is the active. And then the passive one is that takes in all the emotions and reaction to the experience. And then there's the spiritual heart, which has to show intention. So there's activity there, but yet there's acceptance. So there's also some passivity in action also. So it seems to me like there's this nice balance between setting forth what one would want an intention yet and chanting is similar we chant to 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 um create the sound for our, our senses but yet i think the most important part is the listening mm. and that becomes passive so you have active activity and inactivity there when you're chanting which is kind of like getting all parts of my heart going i i'm, I'm breathing in and out with the with the with the with the rhythm of the chant which is a great deep breathing exercise in itself and yet I'm in this passive state of really trying to listen and quiet everything else down, like my, my active mind. Well, I like what you're saying in the sense, I was thinking of, and we've talked about this some time ago, about Hegel, the philosopher who had a thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. And that's kind of like what you described. We also talk about that in terms of philosophically that the thesis is that I am this body and that the world is meant for my enjoyment. The antithesis is I'm not this body. Also the, and then therefore, the, the, well, let's go back to the uh, thesis. And therefore, I'm very active. The antithesis is this, I'm not this body. This material world is a place of, of suffering. And if I do a lot of activities, I'm going to get a lot of karma. And then the synthesis is to do activities but not for my own pleasure, for God's pleasure. So it's kind of, you know, I, li I always like that. And I don't think everything fits into that paradigm, but when they do, I thought what you were saying did fit in there. And then uh, the other point was kind of cool. And then one has uh, quoted, the embodied soul may be restricted for sense enjoyment, though the taste for sense object remains, but experiencing, uh, ceasing such engagements by experiencing a higher taste, he is fixed in consciousness. Chanting is the equivalent to the higher taste, which can make us indifferent to the churning of the mind. So, yes, and we need we need to do some. I wouldn't say work. I like what what uh, what Danny was saying about. Uh, am I pronouncing your name right? That's fine. Perfect. Um, about intention, because when we're chanting, we need to have the right intention. Because we can kind of like, oh, okay, I got to chant my rounds. Or I get to chant my rounds. I love to chant my rounds. I can't wait to chant my rounds. This is an opportunity for me to associate directly with the Supreme Personality of God. So that kind of consciousness brings about that higher taste, that eagerness. Utsahan nishchaya taryat. There's a nice little booklet. I don't. I, it is available online at all. Also by Mahatma Prabhu about 20 affirmations when, uh, about chanting japa. 
Yeah. And maybe if somebody Googles Mahatma affirmations, Japa or something, see if you find it. If you do, if you could put the link in the uh, in the chat. Yeah. I find it sometimes quite inspiring, uh, along with uh, Burijan Prabhu's book on Japa and Sachinanda Maharaj's book called the, the Living Name. Those are three inspirations. And Henry is quoting one of those when he says, chanting is our time with Krishna. Yes. Okay, shall we carry on? Now that we've stopped listening to our mind for the rest of our life. And the next verse, I just have to get my notes uh, back up on the screen here. So should I read what Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur says about the mind? Oh my gosh. <laughs> the mind takes on a different condition at every moment. After becoming pure, the mind then immediately becomes impure. This degraded, cunning person shows friendship to someone, then robs and kills that trusting person. That showing, uh, after showing its purity and portraying itself as free from lust and anger, one day the mind turns a lax sadhaka, that means a practicing devotee, into a victim by suddenly becoming filled with lust or anger. Although this low-born person, the mind, constantly studies dharma, shows good character, and is trusted even in the treasury, because his nature is difficult for him to give up, he commits theft. Similarly, although one comes to trust the mind after it has been purified by sense and mental control and has become fixed in hearing and meditation on the Lord, when given the opportunity, the uncontrolled mind becomes absorbed in sinful objects and steals away all discrimination and knowledge. Ouch. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's really something else, right? So the first three, uh, three, first five verses were about are about uh, this untrustworthy mind, and then from six to eight, we're going to hear about Lord Rishabdev's disappearance. So let's go on to the next verse, verse four. Mm. An unchaste woman is very easily carried away by paramours, and it sometimes happens that her husband is violently killed by her paramours. If the yogi gives his mind a chance and does not restrain it, his mind will give facility to enemies like lust, anger, and greed, and they will doubtlessly kill the yogi. The mind is the root cause of lust, anger, pride, greed, lamentation, illusion, and fear. Combined, these constitute bondage to fruit of activity. What learned man would put faith in the mind? So that's the end of the discussion about the mind. Uh, this goes so much further than the Bhagavad Gita verse. Yes, it, it's developing it further. And like I said, the Avaduta Brahman, the 11th Canto, even develops it more. And there we go. Thank you very much, Prabhu. We have, well, you could, it looks like you can buy it on Amazon, but it's also free on mahatmadas.com. And I recommend it. It's very, very small little book. You can just read a few of those in between uh, rounds or something. And I find it quite inspiring. Thank you for finding that, both of you. Okay, so now the disappearance of Lord Rishabdev. Lord Rishabdev was the head of all kings and emperors within this universe, but assuming the dress and language of an avaduta, he acted as if dull and materially bound. Consequently, no one could observe his divine opulence. He adopted this behavior, and here's part of the answer to the question that was raised earlier, just to teach yogis how to give up the body. 
Nonetheless, he maintained his original position as a plenary expansion of Lord Vasudeva Krishna. Remaining always in that state, he gave up his pastimes as Lord Rishabhadev within the material world. If following, if following the footsteps of Lord Rishabhadev, one can give up his subtle body, there is no chance that one will again accept the, will accept the material body again. Actually, Lord Rishabhadev has no material body, but due to yoga maya, he considered his body material, and therefore, because he played like an ordinary human being, he gave up the mentality of, of identifying with it. Following this principle, he began to wander all over the world. While traveling, he came to the province of Karnataka in South India and passed through Konka, Menka, and Kutaka. He had no plan to travel this way, but he arrived near Kutakachala uh, and entered a forest there. He placed stones within his mouth and began to wander through the forest, naked and with his hair disheveled like a madman. While he was wandering about, a wild forest fire began. This fire was caused by the friction of bamboos, which were being blown by the wind. In that fire, the entire forest near Kuchakaschala and the body of Lord Rishabdev were burnt to ashes. So, um, in, so Prabhupada writes that such a forest fire can burn the external body of animals, but Lord Rishabdev was not burnt, although he was apparently seen so. Mm. So in his death and in his life, you know, so-called death, Rishabdev, you know, he remained fully in love with Krishna and he neglected his so-called material body and mind, right? And one lesson, one thing that we can learn here is that, you know, this idea attachment and detachment are, they're kind of like the, what we were talking about before. In one sense, they're the uh, thesis and antithesis, right? They're, they're the two poles that a soul sometimes gets caught up in one of the two extremes in the, in the world of matter. You know, uh, karmis graduate, gra gravitate towards attachment and ganis towards detachment. And Rishabdev's, you know, the way he showed his extreme austerity and detachment, mm, it's as if he was trying to get free from material entanglement. He already was. He was simply showing, he was simply, um, this is how he chose to teach us, right? That his transcendental form of the Supreme Lord is not, um, it's not really part of the attraction or repulsion of this world. Krishna always remains transcendental regardless of how he may appear externally. And that is a super essential thing to learn from this pastime, right? That whether Krishna's leelas in his different incarnations um, make him seem to be detached from matter, as in Lord Vishabdev's uh, teachings, pastimes, or attached to matter, as in Krishna's pastimes, you know, such as his interaction with the cows and the gopis and the gopas. Uh, Krishna's leelas actually and his actions are always free from matter. Mm. So even here in the renunciation that we're learning about Lord Rishabdev, the Bhagavatam is kind of progressively training us to be able to relish the human-like pastimes of Krishna in the 10th canto. So uh, any thoughts on that? Okay. So now we hear about something that is interesting historically and maybe somewhat different today. 
Um, let's get into it now. Uh, so, Sugadev Goswami continued speaking to Maharaj Pritchett, my dear king, the king of Kanka, Venka, and Kutaka, whose name was Arhat, heard of the activities of Rishabhadev and imitating Rishabhadev's principles, introduced a new system of religion. Taking advantage of Kali Yuga, the age of sinful activity, King Arhat, being bewildered, gave up the Vedic principles, which are free from risk, and concocted a new system of religion opposed to the Vedas. That was the beginning of the Jain Dharma. Many other so-called religions followed this atheistic system. Text 10. Is that, did I miss 9? That was 9, right? Yeah. Okay. Text 10. People who are the lowest among men are bewi and bewildered by the, the illusory energy of the Supreme Lord will give up the original Varnashrama Dharma and its rules and regulations. They will abandon bathing three times daily and worshiping the Lord. Abandoning cleanliness and neglecting the Supreme Lord, they will act, accept nonsensical principles. Uh, not ba regularly bathing or washing their mouths regularly, they will always remain unclean and they will pluck out their hair. Following a concocted religion, they will flourish. During this age of Kali, people are more inclined to irreligious systems. Consequently, these people will naturally derive Vedic authority, the followers of Vedic authority, the Brahmanas, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and the devotees. And then text 11. <clears throat> Low-class people, due to their gross ignorance, introduce a system of religion that deviates from the Vedic principles. <clears throat> Following their own mental concoctions, they automatically fall down into the darkest regions of existence. In this age of Kali, people are overwhelmed by the modes of passion. Oh my gosh, it's 12 o'clock. How'd that happen? <laughs> well, okay, we'll end soon. Uh, the modes of passion and ignorance. Lord Rishabhdev incarnated himself to deliver them from the clutches of Maya. I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad sign that I lost track of time. I generally don't do that. But just briefly, so what happened was Arhat followed, you know, we have these two points, right? Following the footsteps and imitating. And he imitated instead of following the footsteps. And also he... Um, he preached a so-called dharma that was that did not have theism in it. Now later, uh, I think his name was Mahavir, right? He became one of the real preceptors of the Jain religion. He was a contemporary of Lord Buddha, um, and uh, very few of Jains today, you know, there's uh, try to follow, imitate uh, Lord Rishabdev. Right, I mean, I'm sure probably many of you are from India, know some Jain people, and um, they, they, you know, they're not running around pulling pulling things out of their hair. There's a few of their um, monks, and they have a number of different. They've had a lot of schisms over the years, and a number. Um, of, there's a few of them that have no clothing, but most of them just have very little possessions and are very austere. And we also know that there's some really there's some kind of relatively speaking some good things about Jains, right? Like for example, if you go to a restaurant or you're in an airplane and you ask for Jane food, what, what are you sure to get? No, I mean, I'm a vegetarian. Yeah, but more than that, for devotees, no what and no what? No onions, no onions, no, onion, no garlic. No onions, no garlic, yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, if you're stuck someplace in India and you ask for a Jane menu at a restaurant or something, they'll give you one without onions and garlic. And for devotees, it's like, hurry, bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Yet, 
yet it is not a theistic faith. So uh, it's it's just one of those tricky things that, so this Arhat, of course, happened thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, and Mahavir especially brought, introduced a lot more into the Jain faith than, than was there at an Arhat's time. And many Jains, if they if if, if they're asked in a question, a like a, what do we have a census, they'll often check Hindu right in there. Uh, so it's 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 not so much to criticize them, but the fact that uh, any of the research that I've done shows that they don't have a theistic um, part to their beliefs. So that is obviously something that we're not very attracted to in, in the least. Yet it's certainly good that uh, they're vegetarians and most of the Jains that I've met uh, seem to be um, nice people. Uh, Andy writes, Jainism is sometimes regarded as trans a transtheistic religion, though it can be atheistic or polytheistic based on the way one defines God. Yeah, nice way to put it. So any last comments uh, on this point before we sign off for the week? Jains are more more compassionate than most Vaishnavas. They even put a cloth over their mouths so they won't accidentally breathe in gnats and kill the gnats. Well, so then, really, Andy, we can that. get into a long discussion of what we mean by compassion. <laughs> See, the, again, it's, it's, again, it's a little bit like um, uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And I think in that, in that paradigm, they would be the antithesis. Right, do no harm, kind of like you know what what is it the hypocritical oath, right? Hypocritic. Uh, whereas a Vaishnava would not only do no harm, but would actually try to benefit people by giving them an opportunity to hear about Krishna. So, but yes, I, I do see your point, and and certainly compared to people who just you know have barbecues and you know all kinds of things, we would, don't want to mention. They're certainly a lot better off than that. Any other thoughts? Yes, Nandi Muki. I was thinking uh, the Jin maybe maybe uh, make some advancement in their spiritual practice if they remember the beginning verse of our class today, in which Rishabhadeva uh, said, "My dear boys, you are all born from my heart. Born of my heart. Like they remember the source." of their uh, origin novel. Yes. Hey, Nandi Muki, it sounds like you really like that verse. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned it twice. Yes, it's quite wonderful, isn't it? You're all born of my heart. What a, what a nice meditation. Because in one sense, because we were all in one sense born of God's heart <clears throat> in that sense. So very good. Thank you. So we will continue that we pretty much finished um, we just have a little bit more on this chapter six, maybe one more verse that we're going to talk about. And then we'll do chapter seven next week. And